0: My proposal is that God simply is not able to control others. Not only humans, but other creatures. Not only creatures, but even the smallest elements of, of uh, reality. God can't control the pandemic. If God could, God's doing a really poor job of things, right?
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly.
2: And Gary Allen,
1: And welcome to Holy Heretics.
2: Welcome back to season two of Holy Heretics. I'm your co-host, Gary Allen. And as we've said a few times this year, we're on a quest to uncover the heart of faith. It's a quest that involves not only deconstructing toxic qualities of evangelical fundamentalism, but maybe more importantly, it requires reconstructing a freer faith. And part of that reconstruction at some point is going to have to deal with The image of God that we have crafted, we have been given, and that we currently believe in. So one of the big questions that that we're going to try and answer today is just who is this God we say we believe in? Is he the static, authoritarian, despotic God of evangelical fundamentalism? This all-powerful, omnipotent God that controls all and knows all and forces his will on the world— Or have we gotten God wrong all along? What if, instead, God isn't a divine puppet master determining every action and reaction on earth, but rather, what if this God is working alongside us to craft and shape the future? What if, dare we admit, God needs us to bring about God's good ends? What if God has no idea what the future holds? That's both a scary and incredibly liberating concept, and it's a theological view known as open theism. It refers to the belief that God created a world in which possibilities are real and that the future is dynamic and not decided. This contrasts with classical theism or white American evangelicalism, which believes that everything in world history has already been determined, uh, predetermined, and settled by this all-powerful, all-controlling God. Yet, even a cursory glance at scripture reveals that classical theism is just wrong. God frequently changes God's mind in the light of changing circumstances or even as a result of prayer. The God of the Bible sometimes expresses regret and even disappointment over how things turned out. And at other times in even the Old Testament, God tells us that they are surprised at something that happened because they expected a different outcome. So if God isn't in control, then then who is? And how then do we make sense of a world and a faith this free and, frankly, this frightening? Well, we we need help. And that help has arrived today in the form of my friend and scholar, Dr. Thomas Ord. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar, as well as a best-selling and award-winning author. He directs the doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary And the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Ord is best known for his research and writings on love, open theism, science and religion, and the implications of personal freedom. I've heard uh, someone describe Dr. Ord as, quote, living on the sharp edge of Christianity where there are no easy answers to the deepest questions. And gosh, that's like a better tagline, I think, for our podcast. I cool. mm-hmm. might steal that. So, um, <laughs> borrow, Tom, yes, yeah. Borrow. Uh, Tom lives in Nampa, Idaho, and if you want to see some of the most beautiful pictures of the Wild West, you can find him on social media. So, Doctor Ord, welcome to the show. We're really glad to talk to you again.
0: Thanks for that great introduction, and I'm—I've got that sharp edge line stuck in my head, and and I think to myself. <laughs> Yeah, and I've got some scars to prove that the edge is sharp.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, Tom, we are so excited to be able to talk to you about your new book, Pluriform Love, Open and Relational Theology. But I'm curious, before we get to that, can you share a bit about what you mean by open and relational theology? I think most of us would know the philosophy by its more common name, open theism. But what does that mean to you and how does this impact our ordinary
0: life? Yeah. um, Open and relational theology is a label that I invented about 20 years ago. Hmm. I was hanging around with lots of people who called themselves open theists. Most of them had connections to the evangelical community or evangelical institutions. I was also hanging around with a lot of people who self-identified as process theologians or process theists. And they were mostly from more progressive, mainline kind of Christian groups or even uh, groups outside of Christianity. And I realized that these two groups of people share in common some pretty critical ideas. And those ideas are, at least I try to capture them in the two words, open and relational. So let me start with relational. Relational really just simply means that God has a giving and receiving relationship with creation. God not only gives and affects and influences us, but God is affected by us, is influenced by us. And that's like a really, I mean, I've grown up in the church, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, since a kid, I read the Bible a lot. It's that idea that God is relational just fits the way most people think about God. It fits most of scripture. But um, a lot of people are shocked to discover that the major Christian theologians and some major Muslim and Jewish theologians in history have not said God is relational. People like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, they've said God is not affected by us one iota. So we're rejecting the dominant view in Christianity and saying that God is truly giving and receiving a a relational being. The second word, that open word, that's a little bit more obscure, maybe even more controversial. It says that God experiences time like we do, moment by moment, rather than sitting outside of time and seeing the beginning and the end all at once which is the way a lot of um, like someone like John Calvin would think about God's relation to time. Open and relational people think that God has a real past and the future is really the future for God. In fact, God doesn't predestine what's going to happen and even doesn't foreknow with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen. And, uh, those of us in the Christian, uh, part of open relational theology, which were the majority, we think this really fits the God of the Bible well also. That mm-hmm. the God of the Bible doesn't sort of stand back, disengage, but is this giving and receiving is moment by moment as God experiences
2: time. The the individuals you you mentioned earlier, Calvin, Luther, Augustine, uh, I think some of the neo-Calvinists among us would say, you know, they had a very high view of God. And yet your view of God is still just as high. It's just different. Can you can you kind of explain how open and relational theology changes our understanding of God on a on a daily practical level?
0: Yeah, there's lots of practical implications, but let me let me start with a little more abstract. Maybe you won't think it's abstract, but I'll, I'll call it more theoretical. Okay. I've said that open relational theology has a giving and receiving God, a God who experiences time moment by moment. But probably the idea at the core of open relational thought that makes it that leads it away from the theologies of John Calvin, Augustine, Aquinas, etc. Is that we want to start with the idea that God is a loving God, that love for God is like love for us. You know, John Calvin, he's going to say God's loving. Augustine thinks God is loving. Um, the neo-Calvinists, etc., they all going to say God is love. But when you start working out the details of what they mean by that.
2: Yeah, they have a big God- but. They have a big yeah, exactly. behind it, right?
0: <laughs> but God's love is not like our love in any way. You know, God's right. love allows children to be tortured. God right. love sends people to hell forever. God's love, you know, punishes you for masturbating or whatever. You know, right. they've just got this long list of things that God does that if you just look at the face of it, it just doesn't seem loving. Mm -hmm. And so they pull out a big old fat mystery card, put it on the table and say, God is loving, but it's a mystery on how that works. Whereas Mm -hmm. the open relational folks, we say, no, God is loving and that love is like our love. So that means God's not in the business of allowing kids to be tortured, sending people to hell for eternity, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. In fact, we think the best representation of what God's love looks like isn't this guy named Jesus Ever heard of him? You know, he's a guy who doesn't want kids to be tortured, et cetera, et cetera. So um, if we start with the issues of love, then the practical matters start sort of laying out differently than they would In other theological traditions. We're going to be people who don't want to control others because we don't think God's a controlling God. We're going to be people who don't want violence because we think God's not in the business of wanting violence. We're going to be people who foster uh, community consent rather than individuals standing up and, you know, All kinds of those particularities begin to play out in different ways. And I'm not saying every open and relational theologian agrees with, you know, everything everyone else says, but just the general vision of God that is presented. If you start with a loving, open and relational God, it just looks a lot different than a God who's sovereignly in control, like you get with John Calvin.
1: Hmm. So interesting. And I I think, you know, lots of us would say... God is love, and God loves us, I mean, maybe not think through what we exactly mean by that. Right. What can, can you expand more on your version of God's love, and then maybe even why God loves us in the
0: first place? Yeah, well, I think God's love is primarily about promoting well-being, hmm. the well-being of all creation. So, um, you know, that word love has got so many different meanings in common parlance. But I think biblically and in a lot of our everyday conversation, love means something like promoting well-being, doing good, uh, uh, advancing, flourishing in all its dimensions. Hmm. And I think that's what God wants. That includes an emotional element in love. Mm -hmm. So often theologians have said things like, you know, emotions, don't ignore those emotions because, you know, they're bad or, you know, um, open and relational folks not only think we need to take emotions into account, we think God has emotions. We think God's happy and joyful when we love one another. We think God is sad and hurt when we don't love one another, when Mm -hmm. we hurt one another. So we affirm the emotionality that's inherent in love. Now, sometimes we have negative emotions and we have to act to promote overall well-being despite those negative emotions. So I'm not saying it's all about emotions, but Mm -hmm. we include that as part of what it means to be um, a loving person. Hmm. But one of the things that we think is different about uh, the God we believe in versus your typical Augustinian God or Thomas Aquinas, we think God's very nature is love. And by that, we mean God must love. God's love is so essential to who God is that God can't decide, you know what, Gary Allen, Kelly, I'm not going to love you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. God has to love you because it's God's very nature. And that includes also never controlling you, never forcing you to do anything. And that's going to play out in a lot of ways, especially in terms of how we think about evil. But that gives you a little taste of what I mean when I'm talking about love and God's love in particular.
2: You know, I think two words that just stood out for me there was forcing and controlling. And if we become the God that we worship, most of us in the deconstruction community are leaving evangelical spaces because we woke up one day and realized that the God that has been presented to us is is a bit of a monster. Um, <laughs> and and, yep. and I, we actually are seeing that played out uh, live and in person as we are recording this today during the uh, Ukrainian war with mm-hmm. – some very dominator forms of Christianity in the Russian Orthodox Church that Putin is a part of, and then, I dare say, um, a large stream of conservative white evangelicalism. There is a dominator agenda. There is um, basically a a nationalistic version of Christianity that is globally widespread, and it it seems to come from this Augustinian understanding of God. Would you agree with that? Or maybe can you help me unpack that? Because I see so many versions of Christians nowadays who want to control culture, they want to dominate the world, and they're going to look and go, well, I mean, what's happening in the Ukraine, or even what's happening in America with some alt-right Christianity? Well, that's what we're supposed to do because we are supposed to dominate. We're supposed to control because if we don't, you know, the world's going go to go into hell in the handbasket. Am I am I making too? <laughs> yeah. Am I making too much of that, or or, or does that make? sense? Well, I don't sense? think
0: you're making too much of it. No, I mean, I think some people it's explicitly a theological agenda. Mm. uh Putin I don't know him well enough to know that he's <laughs> like thinking theologically on these matters sure but um it is the case that those who do think theologically on these matters can justify the kind of behavior you get in Putin and Trump and, you know, Mark Driscoll and people who are dominating kinds of people, mm. they can justify it by saying, yeah, God's a dominator too. And right, uh, right. there's nothing wrong with what you're doing because, you know, God's in control and using you to control others kind of a thing.
2: Mm. I- Thank you. That's, I think you just said what I've been trying to figure out is God is in control. God dominates and he's using you to dominate. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. I I really think that that's the synthesis. But at the end of Jesus's life, um, he gathers his disciples together and he tells them a new commandment I have for you, not to dominate others, but to love one another, to love others and and love feels really sappy it feels romantic it feels sentimental um but is is that truly the the foundation of of christianity the notion of Maybe this isn't about me sinning less or getting baptized just so I can go to heaven, but maybe the entire script is 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 love. Is it too simple I to do. say that? Yeah,
0: I sure think it, that love is at the heart of it. But I th- also think you're right that people have had what I would consider warped views of what love is. That mm-hmm. love is extreme tolerance, the sentimentality, um, like. Only emotional warm affections. Mm. Um, I want to say, well, actually, I do say. <laughs> I define love as acting intentionally in response to God and others to promote overall well-being. Mm. So it's, it's the aim of love to make the world a better place, to promote flourishing, you know, to make our lives better, whatever the kingdom of God, whatever phrase you like that talks about something about the increase in goodness in our lives and in the world. That, to me, is at the very heart of the Christian tradition. Now, there's a lot of people who say they love, but then they justify this kind of controlling or manipulative tactics in the name of love. And um, that's where things get problematic on the other side. I want to avoid kind of two extremes. One on, we'll call it on the left, which says that love is extreme tolerance. It's only about having, you know, um, happy emotions. And I want to reject the other side, which says love is just doing what's right by forcing your way in and getting, you know, whatever you think the right thing is done. Hmm. Um, I want to say love really does want what's good, but it's always uncontrolling. It involves an emotional element, but but emotions don't run the day. And I think this is the way God is. This is the way God acts in the world. Hmm. Um, My probably more most controversial claim is that God's uncontrolling love Is makes it the case that God simply can't be in control. It's not that God is choosing not to step in and stop the invasion of Ukraine. In my view, God simply can't do it single-handedly and is calling upon us to join with God in overcoming evil.
1: Hmm. Can you can you unpack that for us? Because it I mean, it doesn't necessarily align with the omnipotence that we would say God is from a very, uh, from a different view.
2: Well, can I jump in too, because I mean, I saw this just today on Twitter, um, where we hear this phrase all the time, you know, well, God's still on the throne. Well, how does that helpful? Like God was on the throne during the Holocaust. God was on the the, the <laughs> throne during Jim Crow. God was on the throne during um, the Black Death. Um, how does that help? And and I guess what you're saying is. Maybe that's actually the wrong response to crises and evil that we don't just get to passively sit by and go, well, God's got, God's got this. It yeah. seems like open theology is requiring action of us. Is, is that correct? It is.
0: It definitely is. Yeah, some people who say you know, God's in control or God's still on the throne, what they mean by that is that God controls absolutely every little thing in all of history. Let's call them the theological determinists. God determines mm-hmm. everything. Hmm. I find that not that many people today actually hold that position. Um, they'll say that maybe sometimes, but they don't really mean that God controls absolutely everything because they, you know, they they know that they sometimes sin and so they have to. They don't want to blame God for that. Uh, most people want to say God's on the throne and in control, and God controls some things. But not everything. God often allows bad things, they will say, or permits evils, because it's not part of some, you know, plan of God's. God was going to turn it into something better or teach us a lesson, or God's punishing the Ukrainians for some, you know, unknown reason to me. So they, they will say God's not doing it, God's not causing it, but God's allowing it. Hmm. And yeah. I want to say, no, that doesn't make any sense to me. A loving person would prevent the genuine evils that a loving person could prevent. And if God is genuinely loving, then God ought to be preventing them if God were able. My proposal is that God simply is not able to control others, not only humans, but other creatures, not only creatures, but even the smallest elements of of, uh, reality. God can't control the pandemic. If God could, God's doing a really poor job of things, right? (laughs) So my proposal is that God loves everyone and everything. God's love is inherently uncontrolling. So God simply can't control anyone or anything. However, let me be quick to add, I'm not trying to present like this super inactive, weakling, wimpy kind of God who's watching us on Mars, eating popcorn, saying, you know, sucks to be in the world right now. Yeah, good Tough luck, luck, guys. But- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the God I believe in is active everywhere at all levels of reality, from the smallest to the most complex. And in fact, I think this God is extremely powerful, just always uncontrolling. Hmm. I've invented a, a little word to try to, dis, to, to capture this idea that it's God's love that's powerful. And that word is amipotent, A-M-I, potent, am, kind of like omnipotent, but with the prefix ami, which is the uh, prefix for love. And it basically says God's love is what's powerful. God's love is really active. It's active in all situations, but never, ever in a coercive or controlling kind of way.
2: Hmm. So why so do we pray?
1: I was Gary Allen, that was my question. stole
2: it. Oh, <laughs> go. Okay. okay. Why yeah. do we, you <laughs> ask it, Kelly. Why,
1: why, why do we pray? And then I would <laughs> say the language that we use, that modern evangelical Christians use, is the exact opposite. It's yeah. God brought this person into my life. You know, th- this person is like my partner and it was God's will. Like the everything that we talk about says the opposite.
0: Yeah. And how's that working out for people who go through tough times? Yeah. So I think those who say this is God's will, it doesn't take very long for them to either start qualifying it massively or just thinking, uh, I can't believe in this kind of God. Mm. Um, right. So. Let me answer the prayer question by talking about three models of prayer, because I think it's the the right question to ask, why pray? But if we look at the other, actually, I'll talk about four models, three models I don't affirm and one that I do. And if we look at these other three, which I'm guessing you guys have probably heard people who support them. It'll become, I think, pretty obvious that those don't do a very good job of things. And then I'll write in with the one I think is the right one at the end. All right. <laughs> <Sounds> so <good. laughs> option number one, that theological determinism thing, the God controls everything. God, in fact, predestined all events from the foundation of the universe. If you really think that, then why would you engage in petitionary prayer at all? Mm. I mean, yeah. if God's already determined everything that's going to happen in the future, how things are going to play out in Ukraine, your grandma's cancer, your marriage, if it's already been determined, nothing you say or do is going to change what God's already been determined. So mm-hmm. why pray and ask God to do something, especially if God's smarter than you are? You know, makes no sense. Of course, most people I know who believe God's in control still pray. So they, they don't have a theology that matches their actual practice. But if you were going to try to match your practice with a controlling God who predestined everything, I at least could not be motivated to engage in petitionary prayer. Mm -hmm. So that's the first model. Second model is the one I think is more common. It says God could control, God could intervene, step in and fix some circumstances again, uh, you know, your marriage, your grandmother's cancer, what's happening in Ukraine. But God wants to be asked to step in and fix it. Mm-hmm. As if God's sitting on the sidelines, arm folded, saying, come on, Kelly, you've only prayed 38 times. Mm-hmm. You got to get your faith up here. You got to really try hard before you get right? off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not going to get off my butt and fix something that I could fix, even if you never prayed at all. Mm-hmm. Man, that presents a lousy view of God to me. Uh, um, Imagine if we applied this to parenting. Imagine if I'm out at the the lake with my daughters and one of them's out in the water and I see her starting to drown. And I say to myself, should I go help her? Well, she hasn't asked for my help, so (laughs) I'm not going to jump in. Right. You know, no, no loving father would wait in that kind of circumstance if it's possible to rescue. So that particular view of God's got all kinds of problems too. And it's tied, I think, to the idea that God can just single-handedly fix anything God wants to fix. Third model. This is the model that people usually come to after they realize the first two have got real problems and they'll say something like this and it's actually i hear it more in progressive churches it says prayer doesn't change god it changes me right it it's sort of the the idea that you know my i might become wiser or i might gain a sense of calm or peace if i pray but it's not really having an effect on god in reality other than me i'm in reality but not no one else Um, I think prayer has an effect on us, but I think we can do better than say it only has an effect on us. Mm -hmm. So the fourth model that I want to propose that I think fits open and relational thought assumes some things about God in reality. It assumes that we live in an interrelated universe, that God has a real effect on what happens in our lives. It also assumes that God's a relational God, that we have a real effect on God moment by moment. And it assumes that God engages us moment by moment such that what we do in one moment can have an effect on God and open up new avenues and opportunities for God to act in the next moment. Hmm. With that model of God and reality, then our prayers can actually make a difference to God, ourselves, and the world. It can open up new ways for God to act new opportunities. It provides a kind of relational data, you might say, that God uses. It doesn't enable God to control anybody. I'm not making that kind of claim. But it means that in a relational universe, a relational God is affected by what we do, and that can ha- make a real difference in what happens in the future.
1: Kind of long answer. Sorry about no, that. No, I appreciate it. I, I had a friend that would always, uh, dear friend, but would not, but she prayed in a beautiful way. She would start prayer by asking God, "How are you?" And I remember thinking to myself originally, "What?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: How, you're going to ask that every day?" But in in my darker moments in life, I it seems sometimes the only the only prayers I can utter is, "How are you, God?" Yeah. And and you know what what's your take on that? Is that is that me unknowingly you know participating in open and Relational theology?
0: Well, I think most people pray like they're open and relational. It's just that their theological stuff they're taught is different than open and relational. thought.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
0: Most people f- pray thinking God hasn't predestined the future, hmm. that God's not sure what's going to happen. And so they pray, believing that their prayers just might make a difference. Not that they control God, not like God's a slot machine or Mm -hmm. maybe a slot machine is not the right word, a a vending machine. There we go. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people pray like open and relational uh, Hmm.
2: people. Hmm. Interesting. It's kind of terrifying though, when you think about it, if if God doesn't know what's going to happen, I mean, that's. Am I crazy to say that? It's, no, no, you're not crazy at all. It's kind of scary
0: to me. I think that's the, one of the first reactions people have who, when they hear this idea that God's not in control and doesn't even know for sure what's going to happen in the future. It just seems unsettling.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I, I think we ought to listen to those emotional reactions, think about what's involved in them, and then think about what the alternative is. The alternative seems to be that if God is in control, then what's happening right now is what God wants. Mm -hmm. Tell that to someone who's just been raped. Right. Let them see how much they like that view. I think they would prefer a God who's not in control and doesn't know the future over a God who either caused or allowed their sexual abuse. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so if we compare the models we have, then... I think we'll start to see, at least I, in my view, I think the open relational model is far uh, preferable to the alternatives.
1: How do you think people change when they start to, to gain awareness of their theology and, and move towards this posture?
0: You know, it differs. Uh, you know, people react differently. Um, hmm. I, I notice that when I'm speaking at a conference or a university or a church or a seminary or something, and I lay out some of these ideas, I noticed that some people in the room, their shoulders kind of go back and they kind of sit up and it's like, they're saying to themselves, yeah, what I do really makes a difference. God doesn't Mm -hmm. control me or the future. My decisions matter. And it's like, it's a life affirming kind of theology.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Other people, I can kind of see their shoulders slump and they're like, oh, you got to be kidding me. What I do matters. (laughs) <laughs> you know
2: um, yeah, I don't just get to pray and then go about my business. <laughs> right yeah uh,
0: that's open and relational theology doesn't say the whole world rests on our shoulders, but it does say we have a real part to play. We're ultimately significant. Our lives truly matter. Most theologies, they don't really think that our lives matter. They might say that God invites us to you know be a part of the process. But they have a view of God's power that says that God can just fix whatever God wants to do. And so if we screw up royalties, God's just going to make sure everything's okay. Mm -hmm. In open relational thought, what you and I do makes a difference right now and in the Mm -hmm. future.
2: How does this affect um, more apocalyptic understandings of Christianity? So I'm talking about end times theology or the idea – that at some point you're going to die and you float off to some ethereal heavenly place, and that the spiritual actually um, weighs more heavily than the physical. And I know those are kind of three different. Concepts that I just threw together, but <laughs> there there does seem like there is a thread within evangelical yeah. Christianity that God is more concerned about the spiritual. We are should th- therefore be more concerned about what happens after life and not in this life. O- open and relational theology seems to contradict that. It it tends to maybe point to the fact that the physical world is just as important as the spiritual. Would would you would you say that's true?
0: Definitely. Yeah. In fact, I would say open relational thinkers tend not to distinguish between physical and spiritual. Mm -hmm. We tend to sort of wrap it all up into all together and, you know. Uh, we believe in God. There's some people in the open relational camp believe in angels and demons. Some don't. That's sort of a, you know, negotiable kind of a thing. But <laughs> we believe there's a real God and that we have real minds. And uh, most of us believe in life after death. So, um, but I think just about every open relational thinker says what's most important starts right here and right now. Mm -hmm. We're not just passing time, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the afterlife. Um, What we do matters now. We can live abundant and a transformed life in the present and help others to do the same. Uh, We can be partners with God in our world and in creation. And um, that's a different perspective than a lot of evangelical theologies that most people would know. Absolutely. Most of them will, will say something a little bit about, you know, we need to obey God now or um, that kind of thing. But what they really care about is making sure people go to heaven and avoid hell. Right. Uh, in open relational theology, we don't have that same kind of emphasis.
2: All right, Tom, so you just uh, mentioned the four-letter word, um, <laughs> hell. So let, let's talk about hell and the love of God. Let's talk about hell and open and relational theology. Um, and obviously it's a bit of a kindergarten question, but I think it's also a question that many of us continue to struggle with in this notion yeah. of does hell exist – And why in the hell would an all-loving God send people there to roast for eternity? How does open and relational theology answer those questions?
0: I don't know of any open and relational theologian who believes in the traditional idea of hell as eternal conscious torment. Um, Most of them will say that's not in the Bible Most of them will say a loving God would never send anybody to that kind of situation, eternal conscious torment. But in the open relational camp, there's a number of different alternatives in how people deal with the afterlife. Uh, Some people believe in what's called annihilation. They think that uh, the righteous go to eternal bliss and the unrighteous are annihilated. They're uh, done away with either actively or passively by God. That's not my view, but there are some. The advantage of that view, of course, is that there's no eternal conscious torment. The disadvantage, as I see it at least, is that it means God gives up on trying to redeem some people. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. if you're an open or relational person, you don't think God knows with certainty if people are going to be redeemed, then why would God ever give up on the process? So Mm -hmm. um, some of my colleagues like that view, but I don't. Another option, we might call it um, classical universalism. It says the God sends everybody to heaven, whether or not they want to go, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, kind of an all income free, and you must go to be mm, with me for mm, eternity. Mm. And this not only has the downside of God forcing people to do things, but it also seems, at least in my perspective, to kind of seem like our current lives don't really matter too much. Mm-hmm. Like, why worry so much about Ukraine if everybody goes to the good place at the end, no matter <laughs> what they do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. right? Or, you know, why make sacrifices for climate change? Or why try to reconcile with your marriage partner who's your, you know, whatever. Um, so that classic view of universalism seems to assume that God has a kind of power that will guarantee everyone gets eternal life, and it seems to undermine the real value of our current choices and lifetimes. Hmm. So my view, I call it a relentless love view. It says God always invites us into a love relationship in this life and in the afterlife. God never gives up on anybody. God never sends anybody to hell, annihilates anybody, but God also never forces anybody to do anything because God's love is inherently uncontrolling. Now, this means God can't guarantee that everyone will cooperate because we always have the free choice not to cooperate. But it does mean that God's guaranteed never to give up. And we have the genuine hope that -hmm. this relentless love of God will eventually persuade every being capable of being convinced, every sentient being perhaps, um, that they say yes to God and experience that eternal bliss that Christians and other theists have talked about.
1: Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I have so enjoyed um, hearing your perspectives, and it's making me ask a... A lot of questions. I don't know if we have time for today. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I won't pepper you, um, but one. My last official question for you is: uh, at the very beginning of the conversation, you talked about God being um, giving and receiving. For our listeners, can you give some examples of what you mean by that, and how people can start to ask themselves questions of their view of God and love?
0: Yeah. Like you mean, like giving and receiving, like in scripture or just kind of everyday life.
1: Everyday life. I think it's a you know you can say it and you can hear it and it makes sense and it's it's logical if you have a theological point of view. But also, I don't I don't know if most people view God as giving and also receiving. Other than I think people would say worship, um, is kind of a pat answer. But um, would just love your some more depth on giving and uh, giving and receiving God.
0: Yeah. Well, let me start since you brought up worship. Let me start with that. I remember (laughs) as a 20-year-old being in a worship service and people around me were singing these songs of praise, telling God how amazing God was, glorious, beautiful, loving, kind, sovereign, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, what's really happening here? Like, are we just reminding ourselves of the divine attributes Um, You know, maybe there's some value in that, some theological catechism going on. Um, But is that just really what it is? And if it is, then, you know, I can think of some better ways to do it than maybe singing. You know, I got nothing against (laughs) music. I'm a musician myself, but some of the music sucks. And so I can think of better ways. (laughs) Totally. Um, And then I started thinking to myself, hold on a second. What if I take this relational thing seriously? What if God is actually affected by what I do, including my worship? What if God is pleased? What if God is God's well-being is enhanced by my worship? What if God's really jacked up by what's going on right now? I tell you, to think that I could affect the well-being, the experience of the divine creator, hmm. that gets me motivated. Like I actually want to worship if I think that's what's going on. It's not just me doing catechism. It's me actually affecting the God of the universe. Hmm. So that's a kind of a giving and receiving perhaps example there. Um, I sort of, the open relational thinker starts with the premise that all that's lovely, true, beautiful, good, excellent in the world has its source in God. Mm-hmm. Moment by moment, God is initiating and offering us the possibilities, given you know our circumstances, situations, our limits, our education, our et cetera, et cetera. But God's the source of everything that's good. So that's the giving. Mm-hmm. And then as we respond to the possibilities in any particular moment, we're having an effect on God and God's pleased or sad, God's happy or you know disappointed by how we respond. Just like parents are happy or disappointed how their kids respond, but also just like good parents, God's not, you know, um, God's neither the, uh, what's that called? The helicopter parent who's, <laughs> you know, trying to manipulate everything, nor is God the absentee parent who's, you know, out with the girlfriend on the weekend and you're just on, out there on your own. God's really engaging moment by moment. And this means then that whatever we do, whether it's worship or having nice conversations on podcasts, trying to dig (laughs) deep into the big questions of life, that this really has an effect on God and God can use it for good as we cooperate with God. Now, Hmm. you know, we can not cooperate. We can do things that are harmful and that hurts God and ourselves and creation but uh, we have the the opportunity to be co-laborers with the loving spirit. Hmm. Wow, I love that! Thank you.
2: I I am I am reminded why we wanted to have you on the show again, um, because I mean these are deeply theological uh, concepts and issues, and yet you make it so practical. You make it like, Oh, like that's why it matters. That's why (laughs) this makes an impact. And I mean, and I think that's so true for so many of us in the deconstruction community because um, you know, where, no matter how or why you got here, uh, I do think a lot of us have kind of God uh, damage or, or or God baggage. Um, And I'm not sure that's God's fault. Uh, I think it may be the God that was handed to us, but the God that you have presented here today is uh, someone who deeply cares, is deeply involved, and crazily enough has invited us to be involved with what that God is doing. And That just feels really different to me Um, Mm -hmm. and, and incredibly hopeful. So
0: good, good, good. I'd like to say something about that, yeah, that deconstructive move, move, yeah. because I also went through that, and and I and there's so many people who are going through it, and and um, so many people I talk to are rightly rejecting the God presented to them by their church or their pastor or con, you know dominant American culture or something. Mm-hmm. They're rightly walking away from a God who endorses violence, who thinks Americans are better than somebody, everybody else, et cetera. But many of them haven't been offered an attractive alternative, hmm. and many of them think their only alternative is basically to um, either become atheists or, you know, hardcore skeptics, and to be the the questioners of everything. And I think you ought a question. I'm a you know, pro-doubt person. <laughs> but um, there is another way to think about God that makes sense philosophically, scientifically, relationally, emotionally, and I think fits the majority. I'm not saying all, but the majority of the Bible. And I think that's the God of open and relational theology. And I, I just hmm. recommend people give that a shot i think they'll find it um very satisfying hmm.
1: thank you
2: yeah my really pleasure
1: wish. it's it's very insightful and i i agree with you um, we said that that was our last official question, but we have some more. We like Good. to call them our rapid fire questions where we get to know you a little bit more. Are you okay oh. with that?
0: Yeah, let's go for it. Well, how do I know if I should say yes? Because I haven't had <laughs> yeah, these
1: questions.
2: you don't know, right? <laughs> I mean, I would recommend
1: saying no, but, uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. but
2: we've got you. All right. So- yeah, you said yes already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> first, uh, first rapid fire question for you: uh, Where's your favorite place in Idaho to hike, and and why?
0: Uh, this last weekend, I went out right on the Idaho Oregon border to a place in the Owyhees called the Leslie Gulch area. So, mm-hmm. right now, that's my favorite place. But I hike all over in Idaho. Mm.
1: I love it. Amazing. Our second question for you, you are a teacher, writer, and scholar, which is all those are amazing. What is your hidden talent?
0: My hidden talent? (laughs) That's a, well, I'm a photographer. I don't know if that's hidden because I've published a lot of things, but probably something most people on your podcast wouldn't know. Yeah, I, I shoot with a high quality camera and sold a lot of prints and books. Hmm.
2: I'm always amazed at the photos you post on social media. I'm like, how did you find that? Like the, one of my favorites that you posted the other day was these wild ponies running off into the distance. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was just, it was breathtakingly beautiful. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Yeah. I get
0: out to the wild horse herds and photograph them. Um, I, in November, I made some really nice mountain lion photographs. I came upon a mother and cubs and oh, that wow. was pretty thrilling. So hmm. yeah, I like that sort of stuff. Wow.
1: Fantastic.
2: So with that in mind, what is something exciting that's happening in your life right now?
0: Right now. Um Well, I tell you what, this is gonna sound like I'm well, it is. I'm promoting something that's going on, so I'll tell you what's exciting right now. <laughs> um, I'm getting ready for a summer conference in um, Wyoming um, on open relational theology. It's called OrtCon 22, an in-person four-five day event at a resort located between the Teton National Park and Yellowstone. Mm. Wow! Um, so I want to go. Yeah, you (laughs) can. It's open to everyone who wants to pay. If just go to the, the word Ortcon 22, O-R-T-C-O-N 22. If you type that in Google, you'll get directed to the info.
2: Fantastic. In person too. Wow. I'll I'll put that in the show notes as well. Definitely. Cool. Thanks. Love that.
1: Hopefully this isn't the same answer, but my next question for you is what are you scared of?
0: Hmm.
2: Scared of? I mean, I'm scared of an open and relational God. (laughs) I'm just going to say that. I'm terrified right now. I was like, that was a joke.
1: I'm glad (laughs) Gary (laughs) Allen got it.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I'm going to wax philosophical a moment. Sorry, this is supposed to be fast answers to your good questions. Take your time. um, You know, there's a lot of people who say, you know, we should never fear anything. And I don't buy that. I think it's okay to have fears. It's just the question of what are your fears about. Hmm. Like I fear, I fear giving into temptation and hurting my wife and kids and friends. You hmm. know, I fear um, leaders using their power wrongly and hurting me and others. I fear being on a planet that's going. Having real problems because of climate change. So, I've got some real fears in life. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I don't hope they're not, uh, you know, uh, immobilizing kinds of fears. I'm trying to respond to them well. I have real fears. Hmm. um, And they're kind of more along the lines of what would happen or what does happen when people fail to follow the lure of divine love.
1: Hmm.
2: Wow. That's beautiful. Last last question, your new book, uh, Pluriform Love, An Open and Relational Theology of Well-Being. Why should those of us in the deconstruction community read it? And and what will we take away uh, by reading it? Okay. Well, have you we got an hour? <laughs> <laughs> or two.
0: <laughs> um, I start this book by making the claim that love is the center of the Christian message. That we can make a real good case for love being the center of who God is and how we ought to act based on the Bible. But then I come right out and say, some parts of the Bible simply get God wrong. (laughs) There are some parts of the Bible that portray God in unloving ways. And we should just be honest about that. Right. Instead of pretend like it's okay or somehow it's a mystery we just don't understand. No, just say, you know, sometimes the biblical writers screwed up. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because of the general witness of, of, to God in Scripture and in Jesus Christ. And then I criticize a bunch of famous theologians for their views of love and end up proposing new ways of thinking about God's love from an open and relational perspective, so that's what that book's
2: about. I love it. I'm going to get Sounds it. That's great. Yeah. Well, Tom, this has been incredible. We will mm-hmm. uh, link to your new book in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been great to, to talk to you again. And I've enjoyed
0: so- having the conversation with you guys.
2: Yeah, season three. Amazing. Season three. You're you're welcome. Let's let's just do this a awesome. third time. So, <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, great. Tom.
0: Yeah, thanks to both of you for the conversation.
1: Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.